All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 as we go through this chapter. Remember, uh, tomorrow night we're going to have our candle light service, so we'd like to welcome you to be at that too. Bring family and friends to that event. They may come that time to church uh, during this season, so I'll be sharing uh, a message on seeking God. Uh, of course, that'd be a great time to invite somebody too. So, as we look at the Word of God this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, and let me read verse 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for an opportunity to allow our ears to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would again put ourselves in the equation of the Word of God, um, that it is speaking to, you, to us. And I pray, Lord, as we do so, we would wrestle down and understand and listen with our hearts about what you're saying so we can pray these prayers. And not only pray them, but we can see what it says accomplished in our own life. And that we can experience the Lord on a level that we have never experienced him before. I pray that you would enable us to understand these things today. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. Now as we look at this, we, you notice that these are prayers that Paul is giving us in the word of God. And these prayers before us have been and will be directing our thoughts to the Lord Jesus Christ that we may not just know about him, but that we may know him. And that's really the key that's going on here. May, maybe the most important prayers that a Christian could ever pray are right here in this text. Now you say that um, you have a growing desire to be holy and to be set apart to God and to do his will. Now that desire, if you have it, is a desire given to you by the Holy Spirit of God that it's being produced in your heart by Him. And don't forget this, that all true, holy, and godly living is the result of our knowledge of Jesus and our growing relationship to Him. In other words, as your knowledge of Jesus Christ deepens, your love for Him will deepen. And that is the key to all the Christian walk. That is the key to all the Christian walk. When Christ takes up residence in the center of your personality, in the seat of your affections, in your thoughts, in your understanding, in your volition, that is when Christ becomes the dominating factor in the whole of your life. And then he will be controlling it 
and then he will be directing it. Can you say the Lord is fully controlling your life and directing your life today? The answer probably to that question is no. But I would like him to. So remember that his requests here in this passage are exclusively spiritual. You want something to pray about spiritual? Here it is. So the great concern for the apostle, for us, and for all people who hear the word of God, the the concern is about our spiritual growth, about our development, about our knowledge of God and our relationship to him, and then finally our experience and enjoyment of God. The Lord saves us to worship him, to enjoy him. And when you enjoy him, you will enjoy life because he is the giver of life. So these two prayers, and I looked at one and I'll go back over and look at it again and then because I only finished half the verse there. So we should, we should be praying these often for ourselves and for one another and, and keep this in mind that we are to always remember who we're approaching when we pray and let us never forget also the conduct and manner that we should have when we approach God because if you look at verse 14 it says for this reason I bow my knee before the Father there's this humility that comes over someone who understands the, 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 the scripture and where they stand with God that you are humbled by it and so therefore you approach God in the right manner not in a flippant way and then the second prayer request brings to our attention the believer's constant occupation. This is what something we should be constantly thinking about as believers, and because it we, as we do, we will receive nourishment, and we will have fruitfulness in our life, and so therefore we must pray these prayers that we would be constantly occupied specifically with the deep, deep love of Christ for us. You know why? Because of this. You don't really know how much God loves you. In fact, most of your thinking is, I don't think God does. Because of this and that and all other things. See, and so what Paul is getting us, bringing to our attention is that he wants to get us to the place where we are so constantly thinking about the love of God toward us that we're consumed by it. Again, if we are consumed by this thought, even though it is far above the grasp of our finite mind, the Holy Spirit can give us a growing conception of it. And of course, the content of the prayer is about that this morning. And out of the exhaustible wealth of our great God, the intercession is for the giver of all good things for his children to give the necessary gifts to accompany our Christian growth. So let's go back and finish looking at the first prayer request before I go to the second one. And that's found in verse number 16. And he says this. And the first one was this, that our intercession would be that the Father would grant you to be infused with strength and power in the inner man. For it says, he that would 
grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, what does Paul pray? That the Christian should know more about God's power. So we can answer uh, uh, that by looking at the text where it says, this is the purpose in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he is saying here, listen, I want you to be infused with the strength of God's power in your inner person, and I described that last week. So what? So you can have Christ dwell in your hearts. Now this is intended of course, to be the result of the prayer for God's power, that the Father would grant the twofold re- uh, result that Christ would take full possession of your house and then you be grounded in love. So how then does Christ dwell in us? And to be sure, to start off, remember, if you are genuinely regenerate, if you are a genuine Christian, if you know that you're born again in God's kingdom, and you know that you are made right with God only through Jesus Christ, and you believe that, and you you are following the Lord, then remember, Christ is already in you. So he's talking more than just initial conversion here. He's talking about a deeper walk with the Lord, a deeper understanding of God, and that has to do with you. See, the apostle seems to be putting the emphasis not on the fact of indwelling, but on the way we are to be indwelt in order to experience the power of God. So our bodies, as it says in Corinthians, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now get this, and I want you to understand this, that he is in us by his Holy Spirit, right? But he does not necessarily rule in us. Why is that? Because you don't give him control. There are two ways that Christ may dwell in us. And here's the first way in verse number 17. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the first way is through faith. That faith is our response to God and his promises. It's, it's our means of conscious contact with him. Lord, you said this, I believe that. Lord, because of your character, I believe that. So your faith must be exercised through your will. See, God's transforming all of you, your heart, mind, soul, strength, might, will, He's transforming everything in you. So we can choose to allow Christ to rule us and control us, or we can choose to work it out on our own. Now, let me just say, say this to you. What do you usually choose? You usually choose to work it out on your own. Now, you, just, you, you may not realize that, but that's exactly what you do. That, because I do it. And I've done it for years. And this is a great stumbling block that for the believer in his progression in spiritual growth. So that means that our faith is not a continuous and automatic response to God and his word. It's a series of choices. As you hear the word of God and God begins to change your mind, you begin to adjust your life based on what God is saying in the word of God. Now, 
when we are in rebellion to God, when we are in disobedience to God, when we are harboring our secret sins, Christ is not settled in us. He's not dwelling in our... He, he can't make your heart his home. He is actually grieved. If you look over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 30, it's going to get to that about the Spirit indwelling us. If you notice in verse 30, it says of chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So see, you can grieve a person... And so, therefore, the Word of God wants us to know the Spirit of God who indwells us is a person, but it is Christ indwelling us through His Spirit. And if we are in rebellion, disobedience, or sin, we are actually grieving God by how we're living. There was an illustration I came across uh, given by Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ Home. And he, he simply gives the analogy comparing... Uh, your home to this truth. And I thought it was good to help our understanding. He says, think of your house like this. In the library, there's, it's, the library is the control room. It, it's your brain. And then in that room, Jesus finds evil imaginations uh, there, untruth. He, fly, he finds things that are, are, are displeasing to him. And then he moves to your dining room, which is the place of uh, appetites and desires. And when he, when he goes there, he finds worldly desires. He finds that you're more uh, influenced by the world and your fleshly desires and what you want to do than what he wants you to be and do. And then he moves on to the workshop of your home where your skills and talents and gifts are used. And Jesus finds many toys and things for yourself, but not much use of your gifts to build the church body and to bring glory to God. And then he goes upstairs, and Jesus finds a strong odor in the hall closet called secret sins. And there, of course, Jesus is asking you to turn it over and clean it out. Because even Moses, in, uh, when it's, it's re recorded in Psalm 90, where Moses says, you have, set our, you have set our iniquities before our secret sins in light of your presence. Meaning that there are no secret sins before God. They're all open to God. That he sees everything. And so only when Jesus controls every room is he really at home and settled in your heart. In the Gospel of John, it says it like this, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Meaning that God will move in. That God will move in. And make no mistake, when Christ moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. And it takes a great deal of power to change you. Matter of fact, it takes resurrection power to change us. We covered that in chapter 1. So Paul prays for power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us 
into a house that is enveloped in and reflective of Christ's own character. Again, in John chapter 15, Jesus gave his disciples a kind of an image about the vine and its branches to help explain his relationship to them. And he says, I'm the vine. You are, you are my disciples, you're the branches. And so Jesus says that as the branch must be in contact with the vine, so must the disciples abide in him. And when it is true that that happens, then the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit's power fills the disciples' life, and in the same way as life-giving sap enters into the branches and produces fruit, so it is with a believer when the Spirit of God enters and he begins to transform us and we're connected to Christ, then we begin to produce fruit. According to that same chapter of John, it says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So it becomes very clear that the prayer request is that he wants Christ to take up residence in our hearts and as we exercise, of course, faith in him. So, see, it's by faith that we realize that we need Christ occupying and controlling all of our life, all of our heart, and affecting our, our will, our volition, everything about us, Christ is in control of. A second way that Christ may uh, dwell in us is found in Ephesians verse 17 and it says this it says so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love and here's the second way being rooted and grounded in love so the scripture is speaking here in a general way and we'll get to the specifics but that's to say that the very first of our conversion to Christ the elements of love the elements of God's love in the Christian are already there. You didn't have it before. You have it now. And when you discover that he loved you first and that God had you in mind before the world was ever formed, that in these truths, your thoughts become thankful and you become humbled. And so your whole outlook begins to change. In this way, you begin to love God. You begin to love his people. You begin to love his work in a way that you never dreamed possible. In fact, it says here in Ephesians that these two elements make love prominent in this passage of Scripture. And they're really easily identified being rooted in love and grounded. These two words, rooted and grounded, they're metaphors and they give us a picture, one pointing to the biotechnical world or, or the world of uh, trees and plants, but in this case a tree which is planted and the other metaphor, that of architectural things, in the world, a building and that which is built. So on the one hand, there's a picture of the roots of a tree going down deep into the ground for nourishment and spreads in many directions and becomes larger and stronger as it grows and it becomes a mighty oak. He wants us, our roots, to go down that deep in the love of God so we become strong 
in Christ in that way. And then on the, on the other hand, there's a picture of a building, which the most important part of the structure of the building is the foundation. Because the foundation, if it is done right, makes the building durable, it makes it stable, it makes it strong. So the tree is living, therefore growing, and the building or the structure built is built in a way to stand the stresses and the strains of its environment. Hence, as a Christian, we are to keep moving forward and going on to maturity so that we become like a mighty oak that cannot be blown over by anything. That's why when Paul gets to Ephesians 4, he says that we should grow so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching that's out there all over the place. No, that you're going to be stable and strong because you have deep convictions in your heart about what Christ has done for you and what you understand about what he's done and what he's doing in your life. So see here, the soil of love in which we are rooted will make us grow stronger. This is how we become like Christ the most when we are rooted in love. And this also brings to our mind uh, that there is strength in love. There's not only strength in a mighty oak, but there is strength in love. Love is the strongest thing actually there is. Especially God's love. That the foundation on which it's to be built is to be laid with wisdom and care. Now this building you're, you're, you're sitting in right now is 158 years old. Actually, this coming January. It's an old Victorian church. The structure you were sitting in was founded upon a solid spiritual foundation because, and of course a, a solid stru structural foundation, the spiritual one because it was founded on the gospel of Christ when this church was built. They were preaching the gospel here. Uh, and of course it was founded on the authority of the word of God. Structurally, for when those who built this building laid its foundation, they laid it with the best they knew how at the time. But they also probably calculated this, that this church building is sitting on a vein of shale, rock. So you have a foundation upon rock. So you know what happens? Uh, virtually the, there are very few cracks in the original structure of this building after all these years. And why? Because the foundation was carefully laid and has been founded to endure the stresses and strains of its environment and prove to be durable and reliable. Matter of fact, part of the places that do have cracks in it are the things that we worked on <laughs> with the sheetrock and stuff like that. But the old walls, matter of fact, when we were doing the downstairs and we were putting up the walls for the classrooms, we... we we started nailing into the beams and it was bending the nails so we got concrete nails and we were nailing those in and it bent those. So I don't know what kind of wood they used but it's, it's, like, uh, it's like steel and, but the structure is sound. No, 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 actually no real nails in this. It's all like dowel stick and, and plugs and stuff like that it's that they built this building with. And so it's, it's a sound structure. And in the same way, see, God's goal in verse number 19 of Ephesians 3 is that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Well, that's a large structure. And the height and the weight must support, be supported by a strong, sound foundation. In other words, those who are strengthened by the Spirit 
and in whom Christ dwells will have their lives rooted and grounded in love. Now, consequently, this prayer request is that our whole life should be based in the soil of love and upon the foundation of love. That means love towards God, love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, love towards our neighbors around us, people we have contact with around us, and then love towards our enemies. Well, you know, Pastor, I like the first three, but the last one, I, I, I can't deal with that one. To love our enemies, to pray for those who despitefully use you and malign you. See, only God can give you that kind of love. No one else can give you that kind of love. In fact, only God can give you love for him, and only God can give you love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you met some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need love, all right? And then God will give you love for your neighbor too, and some of our neighbors are pretty ornery also. And so we have to figure out ways to love them and show the love of Christ to them so we can get them the gospel. So this love is not un this is an uncommon love. In fact, this is a foreign love to us. You know what that means? That means we need divine help. We need divine help in order to grasp it and practically live it. So once the redeemer changes your heart, only then can you love God and love like God? Therefore, the one goal of your life, if you, have, if you say this one thing I'm going to do in 19, uh, 2013, it should be this, that you would know the Redeemer, that you, that you would know his love and how it is, it's experienced in your own life and then how to show it to others. So, the only real motive for a holy life is love to God. That will keep you from all kinds of sins. Matter of fact, it will keep you from every sin. I love the Lord. That's why I don't do this. It's not law. It's not rules. It's not ten things and if I do these things, I'm all right. It's not regulations. Because the Lord says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. In other words, this is not a command for obedience. This is not law-keeping. It's not, oh no, I better do this or else. The obedience is motivated by the love one has for the Lord Jesus. The love of Christ is in the person, and that is the motive moving them to act in the way they are acting. A similar passage, which I would like you to turn to, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's really giving in that chapter the goal of God's love. The goal of God's love. That in this particular chapter, if you look in chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14... Notice what Paul says here. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, or constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. No, so Christ's love for Paul had overcome him. That Paul knew the love 
Christ had for him was to such an extent and such a cost, of course the cost was death, that he knew ultimately that Christ loved him savingly. But he comes to understand that Christ loves him as a friend. And so he uses the term in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. That word control really means also to rule, to rule us. Also, A.T. Robertson, an old linguist, said that the common verb meaning here is to hold together. So Paul's conception of Christ's love for him holds him together to the task. That's what motivates him. That's what drives him. Whatever men think, whatever men say, he is overtaken by Christ's love and compelled by him to serve with his whole heart and then to serve beyond the ordinary. So no matter what curveballs are thrown into the mix, into your life, it cannot keep you from the task if the love of Christ is controlling you, if the love of Christ is ruling in your heart, if Christ is taking resident in your heart. Well, it makes us ambassadors, as this passage of, of Scripture says, because it moves us to want to tell others about the love. One thing about God's love, you can't keep it to yourself. You've got to tell it. It's burning in your bones. It's in your heart. You've got to let people know, listen, this is what God has done. He's demonstrated his love on the cross toward me, a wicked, evil sinner, vile, heading for hell, and he rescued me. You want to tell people about that. See, that's God's demonstration of love. And so, therefore, nothing can keep a person who has love for Christ from not telling the message of the gospel to all men everywhere, whatever chance they can get. So it is a love that has the power to make alive. So Christ's love holds believers to the task and puts, in a sense, pressure in their life which produces results. Let, let me show you from the passage of Scripture what I mean. All right, Everything, when you become a believer, becomes different. Right? You know Christ, now, now everything's changing in your life. But notice some of the things that change that is directly connected to the love of Christ for you. Verse number 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the love of Christ moves you to a new sphere where you no longer live for yourself. Look at verse 15. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. You know what the big problem and the obstacle of loving someone is? You know what it is? You. Why is it you? Because you live for you. Matter of fact, you can live your life and never, never know what's going on around you in other people's lives. You don't know how they're hurting. You don't know their needs. You don't know what to pray for. Because you don't even recognize them. It's all about you. And so he is saying here, when you love Christ and the love of Christ begins to work and develop in you, you will have a different view of you. It says here that you might no longer live to yourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So in Christ, believers experience not only death to sin, but also resurrection to righteousness. So now there's a new change. We came 
to be constrained by the love of God and now to live for the one who died for us, the one who died in our place, who rose again to give us real life. And so our whole life interest should be centered in Christ and not centered in ourselves. And that's what he's saying here. When you understand the love of God, yourself is going to start dying away. That's how you know. A lot of people who do come for counseling, the problem in the counseling session is that it's about them. It's me, 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 me. It's, it's, it's my needs. It's, you know, I shouldn't have been offended like this, and that person should have done this to me, and all that kind of stuff. When you become a believer, you know what? You start forgetting all that stuff. Because you are so consumed by the love of Christ and what he has done for you. The implications of the cross puts an end to a life of selfishness. Because you're thinking about it every day. You're thinking about it all the time. That's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain more of Christ. And then look at verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, that the the love of Christ moves the believer to a new sphere where they no longer look at people in a fleshly way. Look what it says in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now, People are not looked at anymore, in other words, as just Jews and Gentiles, as bond or free or rich or poor or pagan or barbarian, or their skin color, whether they're red or yellow or black and white. And that's what we do all the time. That's what I hate the most in political things. It's that somebody always got to trump the racial card, and there it goes down a path that, you know what, it has nothing to do with anything. It's the heart of man. It's not the color of their skin. It's not how much money they make. It's not the status of life. It's not how much they know. It's not how much education they have. It's none of that. See, we don't look at men like that anymore. When Christ's love is ruling in our hearts, how do we look at them? We look at them as lost. As in darkness and in bondage to sin, alienated from the life of God and under God's wrath if we don't say something. So people who are in a a desperate need of the word of God, giving them them some real hope, some real truth in this life. So we make our our appeal to them, our appeal to sinful humanities as if Christ was making the appeal through us before, because that's what he says in verse number 20. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then what, is, what do we do? We beg you on behalf of Christ, please be reconciled to God. Why? Before it's too late. Because you're heading to hell. You don't know that. Not a popular subject, but it's a truthful one. And so therefore, see, the love of Christ constrains you to to say something, to look at people in the proper way and not be pushed around by the world on how the world looks at people. I had one guy when I was in the Marine Corps, he kept taking me out to supper and feeding me. So I went. But each time he was telling me about his, his racial hatred towards people i mean he would talk and the the blood the red blood vessels in his eyes would just just get wider and wider and so about the third time i said listen i don't have anything to do with what you have in fact i i i ended up that was the last time i really had a conversation with the guy 
but all his whole agenda was trying to get me to hate like he hates and I thank the Lord I was a believer then so the Lord rescued me from all that but he was very convincing he was starting his own club and I guess he was getting members I wasn't one of them but see the Lord will change your view of people but then again, there's a third thing. The love of Christ moves the believer to in their new sphere where they no longer look at Christ in a fleshly way. Look at verse number 16 of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. In other words, that and even during this season, that many know Christ according to the flesh. Wow, in which way? He was a great man. He was a great religious leader. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a carpenter. He was a kind man. Some simple or ignorant thing they say about him, or they just simply ignore him. See, some are filled with foolishness and perniciousness and vicious thoughts even about Christ and write him off as nothing. But just think about what the Apostle Paul is doing here, that this proud Pharisee who had been mad in his efforts to stamp out the name of Christ, and he hated Christ as the false Messiah, but when he was overcome by the love of the one for whom he hated, he no longer viewed Christ in a fleshly way. Now Christ was the object of his love and service. Christ's love enveloped him and consumed him and drove him. See, that's where we want to go. That's where the Lord's bringing you in your spiritual growth. That's the prayer request of, of Ephesians uh, chapter 3. That's for you and I. That, that would happen to us. And of course, he says that the love of Christ moves believers to a newer sphere, sphere where everything is new. And that passage of scripture we always quote is from this section right here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, right? All things pass away. Behold, all things are new. Why are you new? Because of the love of God. You're understanding the love of God. See, most of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on the love of God, which informs us that without the motive of God's love within us, we amount to nothing more than ju just like a noisy, clanging symbol where Paul wrote in Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. If I have gifts of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith to remove, to remove mountains and I don't have not love, I'm nothing. See, if I have given all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it says it profits me nothing. In other words, you see, nothing is of value to God unless it comes from a heart that is rooted and grounded in Christ's love. Nothing. When Christ strengthens us in our inner man by his Spirit, and he settles down in our hearts, the result of that will be we will be grounded in love. That's going to be the evidence that Christ is beginning to take over and control all aspects of your heart and your life and your will. 
that this love will become evident. It will begin to pour out of you. But there's, there's a real problem that Paul addresses in this text. And I want you to look back to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the second request that goes along with the first request. Because here's the problem. You know what the problem is? This is the problem. You want to know what the problem is? The problem is this. We can't even grasp the love of God without divine help. We can't even grasp the love of God without divine help. So see, the prayer request is that the Father would grant you to be strong enough to mentally grasp and experientially know the love of Christ. Look at verse number 18 of Ephesians 3. It says, May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, verse 19, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So in other words, this grand and superlative language is communicating to us something about that which we could not know concerning Christ's love if it were not here in Scripture. So, if you consider yourself a loving person, do you consider yourself a loving person? Did you consider yourself before conversion to be a loving person? Well, you may have been a loving person according to the world's standards, or according to your standard, or your family's standard, but you were not a loving person according to God's standard. Because you didn't even know what that was. So if you really begin to grapple with your own Christian walk and your own Christian life, you'll begin to say this, and the Lord brought me to a place where I began to say, you know what, I don't really love like God loves. I don't really love people like the way I ought to. But I want to. So that's why we have to pray and ask God for it. And so that's what he's doing here. If you notice, it is a love we all ought to have because we can't grasp it on our own. Verse number 18. Here's his prayer. May be able to comprehend with all the saints that you may be able to comprehend. So the prayer reflects something that only God himself can impart, and that is to be strong enough to do something too difficult to acquire on one's own power. And you say, what is it? Well, it is for all the saints. And notice he's talking about all of us. Nobody is exempt from this. This is not a special level of spiritual spirituality. This is for all the believers. This, this is for all the ones who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. It is for you. This prayer request is for you. That you would be strong enough to mentally grasp and to comprehend the vastness and the magnitude of the love of God towards you. If you lived there, your life would have to change. You realize that, right? And how could you sin against someone who had such deep and vast and broad love that it can't even be measured? That's why he puts those words on top of one another. It can't even be measured. I love in the Old Testament where Joseph was tempted to have adultery. And he says, how can I sin this great sin against God? That's it right there. That's what will prevent me from living for myself. That's what will prevent me from sinning and being tempted to sin. 
my love for the Lord and the Spirit of God producing that in your heart. So this prayer is for you that you will be able to seize the love of God and make it your own. In verse number 18 also, these words that he piles up, it is a love that we all ought to continually grow in because we, they cannot be measured by dimensions. Four dimensions, actually, they say, are listed here in this passage to show the immensity of a particular object. And in this case, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? Right? Some things cannot fully be understand, uh, understood or explained. However, the idea here seems to be to know that which is essentially unknowable. That's why we need divine help. I can't know this apart from God enabling me to know it. What, in, what, what is that? Verse number 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What is something that surpasses knowledge? Surpasses knowledge? What is it? Think, think with me for a minute. I, I try to... You can't even get your brain around this. Because he's surely not talking about intellectualism here. He's not just talking about ex understanding it with your mind. He's talking about experiencing it. He's talking about living as if God is with you everywhere you go. And knowing it, being confident of it. And not only that, that but how he looks at you. So just think with me for, for a minute about this grand subject. As you experiencing, experience the love of the Father in heaven and ponder how he treats you, maybe you come, you and I will come to realize God's love is the most wonderful thing in the world. It is at the center of what makes life vivid and hopeful and worth living. Laying hold of God's love is no mere intellectual feat. Anybody can write a commentary on the love of God. They can say all the right things. They can do all the right exegesis and not understand it. Because they don't even, they have not experienced it in their daily walk, in their daily life. They haven't experienced it in their mind and in their will and in their affections. If your affections are not moved to God to love Him, then there's something drastically wrong. It could be there's no conversion at all if that's taking place for a, a large length of time. But just think of it, how God, how God loves you. That it's not mere intellectual, but it's a, it's a matter of a practical experience. It's a matter of living together in love with God, which is no easy thing. That's what we need to pray and ask God for this. According to God's love, if I just peruse the scripture a little bit, you are never out of his sight or mind. I, I read a passage like Psalm 139. If I ascend to heaven, you're there, Lord. If I make my bed in Sheol or in the grave, you're there. If I take wings to the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I'm floating on the sea and I got shipwrecked, you're there. Your hand leads me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. See, that's how the psalmist viewed God. That the love of God will, uh, according to God's love, he listens to you. The psalmist also says, For the Lord has heard my voice 
of weeping. Does the Lord know when you weep? Does the Lord know when your heart is burdened and when you're, when you're deeply pressed by the world? Does he know those things? According to scripture, it says not only does he know them, but he hears your supplication and the Lord receives your prayer. See, what, what drives me to understand that? The love of God that drives me to understand that. It brings me to a place I understand how God sees me now that I am in Christ. He sees me as Christ. He treats me as his own son. And so also you. So according to God's love, he notices and cares about everything that happens to you. But see, do we believe that? He said in Luke 12, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. If God's taking notice about the sparrows that fly around, would he not take care of you, created in his image, redeemed by his son, brought into his kingdom? Would he not? How is that? It's God's love towards you. And according to God's love, he speaks openly about us continually. He says in John 15, No longer do I call you slaves, but what do I do? I call you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's what a friend is. A friend is somebody you tell everything to. And that's what the Lord does. The Lord's not holding anything back. Whatever he gets from the Father, he gives to us. Why? We're his friends. And you want to let your friends know the most important information they could know so they can live a better, more fulfilled life, especially a life that loves the Lord. The love of God is the refuge in the middle of your suffering. The love of God is according to, well, he hangs around when no one else does. That's why he says in Hebrews he says, I will never desert you or I will never forsake you. See, so God's love is so vast in its dimensions, it could never be fully understood and ex- by us. It could never be exhausted. According to God's love, what does he do? He lays down his life for you. And of course, in Romans it says, God demonstrates his his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. According to God's love, he forgives all our sins. According to God's love, his mercies are new every single morning. See, God wants you to respond to his love by trusting him with your whole life. It's like when Augustine was praying one time, he says, Lord, I confess this sin, but not this one. until he came to a place after praying that way. Lord, I confess all my sins to you. And I lay them bare before your face. See, he has bridged the distance between you and him through his death, life, resurrection of his sons. Now he is making you like him and walking with you every step of the way. Why is that? Because I'm understanding the love of God. And it's the love of God who constrains me, who rules in my heart. And for that I become strong and 
have a firm foundation and cannot be pushed over by anyone. And even in Ephesians 6, even when Satan comes and he tempts you and he comes with the snares and he tells you how a rotten person you are and how, how could God love some creature like you with all the failures and all the sins and all the things in your life, how could he love someone like you? And you stand up and tell him the truth. You're able to stand against him. Why? Because of this passage here. The love of God, which is ruling in your life. So the Apostle Paul is telling us all over the place that there is strength that is given to believers who are growing in their love for God. In fact, you know the passage well. It's the Apostle Paul in another place where he says the strength given to us who are growing in our understanding of God's love is framed by him with a rhetorical question. And what was the question in Romans chapter 8? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will do that? Will tribulation separate you and distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him what? Who loved us. See, it's someone who understands the love of God, who says, you know what? None of those things is going to move me from uh, my love for God or God's love for me. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, and then he says, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able, what? To separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is strength. That's strength. And even, I don't think Paul left anything out. As I think of a passage of scripture like that. He included everything. So he answers his question. Who, who will be able to separate us from the love of Christ? No one or no thing. Or any other thing you could put in there. Nothing. So do we really love, know God's love by experience? Have you experienced this yet? Or are you still wrapped up in you? See, it's not about you. It's not about your wife or husband. It's not about your kids. It's about your relationship to Christ. So that means it is a love we ought to all know well enough so we can regularly rejoice in it for this reason, because we're filled with the fullness of God. And if you look back at Ephesians, in verse number 19, this is what he says, And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Explain that passage. See, the presence of God in our life means strength, it means wisdom, and it means inspiration, and above all, it means love. See, this is total spiritual richness. 
This word fullness here in this passage is used about God, and it carries the idea of control, again, of completeness, that God does not fill people the way we feel. We fill buckets. God can only fill to the extent that he controls. Man after conversion is a free being. Man after conversion is a lot like Adam. He can choose yes or no. And as we progressively submit areas of our lives to Christ, he fills them. He takes control there. Because the great plan of God is that all things through Christ would be brought under his authority, even all the compartments of your heart. So in, in Christ's kingdom, when we are worshiping them, he's not going to have any problem with anybody's heart. Because he's going to be ruling and re- reigning totally in them. So since God is love, the believers filled with the fullness of God will express godly love. Since God is wise, believers filled with the fullness of God will express godly wisdom. And since God is holy, believers filled with the fullness of God, will live pure lives. And I can go on in the attributes of God. And all this is driven by your continual growth in understanding the vastness of the love of God towards you. And if we walked out those doors and we went home and we went to work and we were thinking about the vastness of the love of God towards you, in your life, everything would have to change. You realize that. And so, how do we start? We pray and ask God for it. These are prayers. So then let us, that the Father would grant you and I to be infused with strength in the inner man so that Christ will settle down in your heart's and that he would be that we would be strong enough to mentally grasp and experientially know the love of Christ that's for us that's for all the saints amen let's pray lord thank you for the word of god if this was not here we really lord would be we would have our legs cut off. Because, Lord, this is the very thing that moves us from one level of glory to the next. And, Lord, I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone who knows you here this morning. If they don't know you, they'd come to know you. But if they do know you, Lord, because this is a prayer for a saint, someone who has come to Christ, that you would truly grant them to be infused with the strength that you give in the inner man so that Christ may settle down in their heart and Lord that you would give all of us the ability to mentally grasp and experientially know the love of Christ I pray every day it would consume our thoughts and as it does Lord I pray that we would drop off those secret sins I pray Lord that we would see people as we ought to I pray, Lord, that we would see you as we ought to. 
and that Lord you would begin to take over our selfish areas and Lord that you would rule in our hearts and that Lord we wouldn't grieve you by uh, anything that would dishonor you or displease you so Lord bring us to that place for I know Lord when you do it's, it's going to be a place where we really begin to live we really begin to know that all things pass away and behold all things have become new everything even things in my own heart and mind and the way I used to do things in my old habits in my own uh, places I used to go are all in the past I pray Lord that it would be the love of God that would keep me from the strongest temptation anyone could overthrow, ever throw at me and Satan himself to cause me to fall. I would pray, Lord, that it would be the love of Christ that would keep me from sinning. And I pray, Lord, as that happens, Lord, we may be filled with the fullness of God. I pray this, Lord. And I just ask you, Lord, to do it for your sake. Christ, I ask it. Amen.